My friends often tell me that I'm the person on their contact list who changes addresses most often. They're not exaggerating. I'm not embarrassed to admit it. I've moved cities, states, and even countries at times to get away from abusive people. You could say I was always running away. Flight is one of the survival defense mechanisms. That might be part of what was going on. Also, sometimes leaving the playing field is the best move to make. Usually I moved because something bad happened and after it was over, I didn't trust myself not to go back to what hurt me. Moving was always an intuition. I just felt like I had to move. I wanted to be far away from the abusers and the memories around every corner. I didn't want to go through that torment anymore. I moved more times than I could count, each time knowing that's what I had to do in order to set myself up for success. I couldn't go back if I wanted to go forward. Moving was a way of burning the bridges that led me back to what hurt me. I didn't actually understand anything about the trauma bond when I made those moves, but somehow I knew that there was a power greater than me that would pull me back to the abuser if I was still nearby. Back then I thought it was the abusers, that they held that power over me somehow, but later I realized it wasn't even them. It was something happening behind the scenes. Did you ever have a moment during the abusive relationship where you suddenly saw the insanity of what you were doing? It's that moment when you can see so lucidly how an abusive person did so much to hurt you, yet you still have hope for the future. If you did, you probably also recognized just how delusional that thinking was. But at the time, it was as if you couldn't help it. You felt somehow addicted to the pull of that abuser. You could watch yourself falling deeper into the trap and you could consciously reason why you should leave, but something just kept stopping you and sucking you in deeper. It might've been driving you crazy because you just couldn't figure out why you couldn't leave. You knew you should, you knew you wanted to, but it was like your feet were cemented there and you couldn't really even figure out where there was so you could go get a jackhammer and get out already. Even if you managed to get out, you've probably also realized that you're struggling with moving on. Sometimes people tell me that months or years have gone by since they left the abuser, yet they feel like not much has changed and they're basically where they were a long time ago. They feel stuck. What I usually discover in those sessions is that the client is trapped in fear and shame. The fear is the glue of the trauma bond. The shame is what distorts your self-worth and self-esteem. It causes you to self-doubt and self-sabotage, staying stuck where you're at while believing that you're not enough and that you don't deserve better or that what you really want in life is just not possible for you. Speaking your truth starts to relieve you from the burden of the shame caused by the abuse. Confronting the fear of speaking up starts to weaken the trauma bond. At some point along the journey, you will face your deepest fear and that which holds the greatest power over your life. Your authenticity is the sword that will finally cut through the denial and set you free. That is the spontaneous moment when the trauma bond will break and the shame dies with it. You come out of the ordeal reborn in some way. Your old self that was defined by so much shame will die in a sense. You'll notice a new level of self-acceptance as you release the enormous weight of toxic shame with the trauma bond.
you'll emerge with a new sense of worthiness to redefine who you are based on your authenticity. I'm Meredith Miller, and this is the Inner Integration Podcast, where you can learn the mindsets and tools to help you heal after narcissistic abuse. The trauma bond is what's going on when you feel like you just can't live without the abuser. You're defending the abusive person to your friends or family while they're encouraging you to get out. You might even turn against your family and friends in order to remain loyal to the abuser. You feel so ashamed about what you've put up with that maybe you didn't even tell anyone what was going on. You keep quiet while you're defending the abusive person in your head, justifying all the reasons why you should stay and keep trying to work it out. Maybe once you see the pattern, you even notice that you've attracted more than one abusive person in your life. You might wonder why you keep getting hooked into those abusive situations. There's a built-in drive for survival in the human brain that causes a target to bond with an abuser or captor. It's so irrational. It can cause a rape victim to fall in love with their rapist. We are humans and also primates who are driven to survive no matter the cost. When our survival is threatened by another person, our primitive nervous system may betray our advanced human conscious mind and bond with the perpetrator. This is what happens in abusive relationships. Even when the target doesn't fear that the abuser will actually kill them, they can somehow sense the death of their sense of self that is taking place in the relationship. The ego mind interprets this annihilation of self as a life or death situation. Emotional bonding between people who spend time together is a healthy and natural thing. In fact, it's essential to our survival. However, something different takes place with the kind of bonding that an abuser has with their victim. Dr. Patrick Karnas, a leading expert on trauma bonds caused by abusive relationships, also refers to it as a betrayal bond and insane loyalty. Narcissists put their targets through the sweet mean cycle of reward and punishment. This intermittent reinforcement is the behavior that causes the strongest bonds to form between people. A trauma bond is caused by the abuse cycle of intermittent reinforcement in which the abuser goes back and forth between sweet and mean, or otherwise known as idealization and devaluation, while the target eventually feels like there's no way out of the relationship or situation. Through the constant back and forth between love bombing and devaluation, a biochemical response takes place in the body of the target involving the release of cortisol, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, based on which tactic the abuser is using at the moment. The trauma bond literally creates an addiction to the emotional roller coaster and corresponding biochemical intensity of the abusive relationship. The trauma bond appears to be a survival mechanism built into the human emotional and primal brain that causes people to become irrationally loyal to the abusers and captors. The trauma bond is not taking place at an intellectual level. It's not happening in the rational thinking part of the brain. This is why abuse victims cannot be rationalized into leaving. It's also important to note that victims of abuse are not stupid. The subconscious mind and the primal brain focuses on the positive in the abuser in order to survive and cope. 
the longer a person is in an abusive relationship, the harder it is to leave because of how strong this trauma bond becomes. No contact actually doesn't break the trauma bond. Neither does time itself. No contact is merely a boundary that protects your peace while you heal. Time itself won't break the trauma bond. Neither does the distance. You actually have to do the inner work over time, no matter how far away you are. Until this trauma bond is broken, you will keep going back for more abuse from past abusers or from new abusers who show up. The trauma bond breaks at a spontaneous turning point in the later part of stage two of the recovery process. You can help yourself get there by relentlessly facing the truth. Remind yourself who you are, who the abuser is, and what the abuser did. Own your reality. Do not let yourself indulge in the fantasy of what you wished it was, or the toxic hope of what you hoped it could be, or the fear of the worst thing that could happen. Stay out of the comfortable pool of denial. Fantasy, toxic hope, fear, and denial will all keep you stuck in the trauma bond. Here are some signs that you're still in the trauma bond, and this is an excerpt from my book, The Journey, A Roadmap for Self-Healing After Narcissistic Abuse. You're still hoping for or accepting contact from people who hurt you because maybe they will apologize or change. You're still helping people who have hurt you out of guilt or a sense of obligation. You're still extending trust to people who have showed you over and over again that they are not trustworthy. You still can't cut off from toxic relationships of the past. You're still attracted to new toxic people that you meet. You're still trying to convince abusive people in your life that there's a problem with their abusive behavior and they are unable to accept self-responsibility for their actions. You're still defending your decision and or looking for approval and validation from other people to tell you whether you have the right to cut off an abusive person in your life. You're still fighting with abusive people in your head, defending yourself against their accusations and arguing with their reality paradigm, feeling exhausted afterwards. And finally, you're still afraid of the abuser. Here are some of the best clips from my YouTube videos on the trauma bond. Today I wanted to put this message out there because I get a lot of messages with people talking about the confusion part of the abuse and they say well sometimes this person is really wonderful and really nice and then sometimes they're really awful and and they go back and forth I, I did this too I was in the exact same thing where I was rationalizing well you know they did this awful thing but then I know who they can be and I know who they are sometimes or back in the beginning you know when they did this but now you know for whatever reason I'm justifying the abuse like why they're treating me this way why they're showing me that I don't matter why they're showing me that they don't care about me right so if that's where you're at where you're like you're looking back you're looking back and forth maybe you're watching this on a daily basis the person just flip-flopping between sweet and mean idealization and devaluation kindness and cruelty and you just can't quite wrap your head around it and that's why you're really struggling to move on because 
part of you is still thinking that maybe this person really isn't so bad. And what I want to tell you is that that is the hallmark of abuse. That flip-flop, the back and forth, the sweet, the mean, the idealization, the devaluation, the kindness, the cruelty, that is the hallmark of abuse. That's it, right there, it is a cycle. It's not one or the other, it's two sides of the same coin. It is one whole thing, and that is the cycle of abuse. It goes back and forth and back and forth, and it repeats endlessly until you stop that game by getting out. And that's the hard part, that's when you have to realize and tell yourself that you know, sticking around because of what you see sometimes is not worth sticking around because it's a whole picture. You don't just get that part of the person, the nice part, the kind part, whether that's real or fabricated or manufactured to make you think or feel in a certain way, that point doesn't matter. What matters is that they treat you like this and they treat you like that. And it is both, it is not one or the other. And, and that's what you really need to understand is that when you're seeing that pattern, the flip-flop, the back and forth, the 180 degree flip, that is the telltale sign of abuse. That's why you're confused. That's why you're second doubting. That is the whole nature of the abuse is set up to make you self-doubt. That's why they do the sweet and the mean. That's why they have these so that you can be confused, so that you do doubt what's going on. So I wanted to put that out there so that you can really recognize that and really get that into your head. That is the abuse. Okay, I know it's really hard to accept, but you really gotta take a look at this as a whole picture, big picture pattern in your life. Stockholm Syndrome has four criteria. The first one being there's a perceived threat to your life where the victim feels like the abuser or the captor could in fact kill them. And this might be a physiological, a physical threat. They feel that they're actually going to die. They're going to kill their body. It might be a psychological threat. They might just fear that they're going to die. It might be a sense of like soul death where they're destroying your soul or a sense of identity theft where they are destroying your entire sense of self. The second criteria of Stockholm Syndrome is an act of kindness. When the captor or abuser extends a small offer of kindness to the person being held hostage, to the victim in the relationship, that perceived kindness then tricks the brain, confuses the brain. The third criteria of Stockholm Syndrome is the isolation, where the captor or the abuser has isolated the victim or the hostage from the perceptions of other people. And this is a classic abuse maneuver where the abuser will always isolate the victim. They will triangulate people in your life away from you. They will make you jealous or paranoid or afraid of people in your life, people who actually care for you. They will physically isolate you. They might move you to a new place in some way, like get rid of your cell phone, somehow isolate you from connecting with the outside world. Or it might just be this very covert kind of manipulation where, you know, say you spend most of your time with this abusive person and like the rare times, like the one time or the rare times when you make plans to go see a friend, a sister, a brother, a cousin, someone who actually cares about you, you wanna go do something with other people, they will purposely sabotage that. Like before you're going out, they will make you so upset that you either lose it and you feel so horrible that you can't even leave the house and you can't go out and then they get you because they keep you stuck at home. Or you do go out and then you feel so horrible while you're out that you can't have a good time. You can't really connect with the other person and you're so fearful that you don't actually tell them what's going on. And these kinds of things will happen a lot. 
So there's that isolation aspect where they don't want you to hear other people's perspectives because other people who are healthy, who are looking in on that, who actually care about you, they will call this out. They will recognize the signs of this. The fourth criteria for Stockholm Syndrome is the perceived inability to escape, where the victim, the hostage, feels like there's no escape, there's no way out. This is where the learned helplessness comes in. The victim feels like it's hopeless, like they can never get out. You know, maybe they got roped in financially to this person, the abuser didn't want them to get a job or told them to quit their job or sabotaged their reputation at work and they lost their job or just maybe they're self-employed, they're an entrepreneur, they have their own business and they just feel so crappy because of all this abuse that they can't put that energy into their business, the business is failing, they don't have the financial resources to get out. It could be, it could be a legal thing. Often when I hear from men, it's usually because they're in a relationship with a very toxic partner and they have children with this woman and the whole system is set up against the man. The system is set up against the man admitting the words, I'm being abused at the hands of a woman. It's set up such that the man does not get help from domestic violence shelters. It's set up such that the man already has a huge battle ahead of him in the family courts which tend to take the side of the woman and they just don't realize that there's abuse taking place. So I hear this happening a lot where people just feel this, this sense of helplessness, like they can't get out, they feel like they can't get out. And that's another part of feeling like you're trapped in this Stockholm Syndrome, in the trauma bond. The Stockholm Syndrome, the trauma bond, this is why people can't leave. This is why they keep going back, why they get sucked back like a rubber band effect, like they get away and then and they're doing great and you're talking to them and it's it's amazing they have no contact with the abuser and then all of a sudden they hear from the abuser and it's like that rubber band effect they're right back in that relationship and you're going oh my god all that progress all that time that you got away what happened stockholm syndrome is what happened this is a primal defense mechanism to survive Right? It's like this, this is the primal method that the human brain and the nervous system reacts in these kinds of situations to keep you alive. And the hook here, like the real hook here, is that kindness, the perceived kindness. So, you know, that goes along with that intermittent reinforcement where at first the abuser idealizes and love bombs and gives you all this positive stuff, and then they start in with the devaluation, with the meanness, the cruelty, putting you down, you know, all of that kind of behavior. But then they're very careful to keep dosing you with those little things of kindness. Like maybe you come home and they went out to your favorite restaurant and they brought you that food or they brought you your favorite drink or they offered you, you know, a ride to the airport or something like that. They offer to help you in some way and that's where it gets really tricky. Do not accept help from people that you know are abusive because that help always comes with an ulterior motive. Abusive people know that if they extend a small perceived kindness, which they don't care about, they don't mind doing that, they don't mind being all fake and pretending like this is something that they want to give to you, like they just put that ego totally aside, like there's no pride there, they're happy to help you, why? Because they know it's going to hook you, they know if they do something kind, if they give you one of these gestures and you need their help especially, they know that they got you, so be really cautious with that. I think the worst part about the Stockholm Syndrome is that what it really reinforces is that no one believes you, you know, and especially if you're involved with one of these covert 
types of narcissists where you know they're not overt they're not out there they're not out in the open about their narcissism they're not bragging about their narcissism in the community they're pretending to be like this very exemplary figure and everyone admires them and looks up to them and thinks amazing things about them and maybe they appear to even have some kind of like normal role in the community or like some kind of you know leadership position at work and then maybe you're the person at work that they target and nobody wants to believe you because everybody else only sees the great parts about this person or you know you're in this relationship maybe it's an intimate relationship with this person but like everybody else in society thinks they're amazing and they don't want to believe you and it just reinforces this whole thing of feeling so alone and you feel so alone you feel so isolated because when you do share that with people when you try to tell people what's actually going on nobody wants to believe you and this just becomes very very damaging to the psyche of the victim because if you go out there and you tell people and people are like you're just overreacting i'm sure you're just imagining that you're blowing it out of proportion you just can't let it go and they say these things you know and then and then if you start internalizing that and start to believe that that is very damaging to the healing process because the healing process has two things at the very foundation one is safety you have have to feel safe not just in your physical environment but also in your emotional environment and that means are you able to be truthful with yourself are you able to be around people that you trust that love you that have your back do you have your back do you feel safe with yourself the second one is truth Truth is what set you free. Truth is what helps you realize what happened and make sense of what happened, understand what happened. And sharing that truth with other people is paramount to the healing journey. That's why you need to have a support network, people who get it, people who understand, people who validate you. Not like the societal temptation and pattern, which is to blame the victim for what happened, you know, and if you're hanging out with people who won't allow you to speak your truth, if you're hanging out with people who don't believe your truth, you're setting yourself back from healing. You need to get away from those people. You need to be around positive people, uplifting people, unconditionally loving people who support you in your truth and help you heal and get better. The only other possibility is to fall back into the denial. And that's very dangerous because the denial isn't healing. The denial is repression. It's resistance, and it's only going to get worse the longer you stay in denial. And that's the temptation really here, is the cognitive dissonance, because it's like, on one hand, this person is incredibly abusive and does these horrible things, and when you look at the bigger patterns, you just see like this person is an abusive person. And then on the other hand, what you see is that there's like these intermittent acts of kindness. Like this person does these things that seems like they care about you, it appears that they care about you and it confuses your mind when you're trying to hold on to both of these things. Well, it's this and it's this. They're abusive and they're kind, but it's all a big picture and that's the thing because that cognitive dissonance will keep you stuck. That cognitive dissonance will encourage you to go back into the denial. The cognitive dissonance is what like short circuits the brain, like it fries the brain where you're going back and forth and back and forth and you're like, Dzz and then you're right back in the denial. You've slid right back into the denial. You've gone through the abuse amnesia where you've forgotten 
the abusive parts and now you're just you know rationalizing how this is a good person and they're really trying to get better and they're really sorry and they're really making efforts and that's a very very dangerous place to be so I just wanted to put this out there to let you know what to look out for with the Stockholm Syndrome, with the trauma bonding, how to recognize this within yourself. Like, Because there, there is a point where you can catch those moments of lucidity where you're like, you know, this is just like that video I watched where that woman was saying, if this and that are happening, and then if that and that are happening, it's probably this and watch out for this. This is that voice telling you, this is what to watch out with Stockholm Syndrome. This is what trauma bonding is. This is why it's so dangerous. And this is why you want to go back. This is why one text, one email that you receive and look at will just suck you right back. And this is why you don't want to answer those emails. This is why you don't even want to read those communications coming from the abuser. This is why you want to delete and block. And of course, a lot of these people are going to make up fake Facebook profiles or fake Twitter accounts or get some kind of unlisted or private number or call you from a payphone. Do those things even exist? I think so. But they'll find any sort of way of calling you from another number if they suspect that you're blocking them and that you don't want to talk to them. So, you know, my my advice to all that is screen all your calls. You know, if you've got a cell phone, it just tells you the number doesn't tell you who that is let that go to voicemail let it go to voicemail if that's important if that's some you know person or situation that needs to get your attention they're gonna leave a voicemail for you and you can call them back do not answer that call if I were you I would get a brand new number I wouldn't keep that same number because then you know that person can always find you they, they still have your number they can invent another phone number they can find another phone number they can call you they always know how to reach you they can find you on whatsapp they can find you you know who knows if you linked your phone number to your Facebook account you shouldn't be doing that Make sure that you keep that private. You wanna cut all of this off so that you can stop all of that communication from coming at you because it's it's literally like if you, you might be really strong. You might have a really strong mind, a really strong willpower, a really strong sense of self-control, and you feel amazing when you're in no contact. You have your power, you feel amazing. That one little text, the one little call, the one little Facebook message, and you get right back into that. So you wanna prevent that from happening by taking these steps. Don't think that you can overpower that. You can, sometimes you can, especially when a long time has passed by, you've really worked through these patterns. But if you're not there yet, and that's okay, even today I know sometimes if I get a message from a certain person, I'm that feeling inside where I'm gonna to wanna to go, well, but maybe, no, stop that. Right, it's so dangerous. If you allow them that opportunity, if you read that text, if you read that email, you're only putting yourself in a dangerous position. Don't put yourself in that position because this is a primitive response, a primitive response from the brain and the nervous system. This is how your brain and nervous system is wired. You need to be aware of these patterns so that you recognize them before you get sucked into that. This person says, is the narcissist kindness ever genuine? Do they ever truly let you see them without the manipulation tactics? I'm having trouble grappling with the possibility that my ex-narc of eight years always had a ploy up his sleeve, no matter where we were or what we were doing. So that's a great question. I think a lot of people are asking this question. Like, is their kindness really ever genuine? Do they ever just do something nice because they're just going to be nice? I have a really hard time believing that. What I've found in experience with so many different 
forms and shades of narcissists, sociopaths, psychopaths, and borderlines is that they give something with an ulterior motive. They give something to get something back. Maybe it's something they want in the moment. Maybe it's something they're setting you up for in the future, right? So, you know, why, why would they do that, right? Why, why would they offer you this kind of kindness? Often what happens is when they do something for you, then they can go and tell everybody else like what a nice person they are and how much they do for you and other people. The altruist narcissist is a master of this. I don't know if you've heard this phrase. I only heard of this a couple months ago. Altruistic narcissist, right? This is the one who, you know, seems to be out doing volunteer work and charity work and when you meet them and you start dating them like they're just trying to help you out with everything and they're being super helpful or you go to a family gathering and they're the one that's like doing everything to look really good or you know how that is right where like they're they're doing all these nice things and it's like it's a way of hooking you because you're thinking there's I mean, this person obviously has empathy. Like, there's no way they're a bad person. They wouldn't be doing all this nice stuff if they were a bad person. So you start to trust them. And what happens is as they go out of their way doing these nice things for you, it's really setting you up for a a, a sick form of self-doubt. Like, you will start to doubt yourself more than ever in your life. Why? Because the cognitive dissonance is so strong. The cognitive dissonance of, But this person does all these nice things and they go to Haiti and they volunteer, you know, to restructure buildings and help people with medical stuff after the earthquake. And then they they do all this other stuff, right? But then on the other hand, this person says this really cruel stuff or they just disappear for days on end or they give me the silent treatment for hours or days, if I don't do what they want, or if I call out their behavior for something. And so you start to get into this very deep sense of cognitive dissonance. And the nice one, you know, you have the altruistic narcissist who does a lot. And that's certainly a form of covert narcissism. But then there's also just the regular run-of-the-mill covert narcissist who isn't necessarily an altruist, like they don't go out of their way, but they seem to be a nice person and they seem to have this image. And it's really important to recognize that that kindness that you see is part of the Stockholm Syndrome. You know, there's four requirements for the Stockholm Syndrome and one of them is, quote, a perceived act of kindness that the target or victim or hostage perceives perceived act of kindness. So if you're talking about a bank heist, you know, where this originally took place, people are held captive and, you know, the people who who robbed the bank give them a bathroom break or they give them some water or they give them some food. That's what hooks in that person to the Stockholm syndrome. That's when they'll start to empathize with the abuser, with the person holding them captive. That's how it works in a relationship too. As they give you these perceived acts of kindness, you get really confused. And so you, you have empathy with them and you defend them and you don't want to see the other aspects of their personality. This person says something like, you know, 
I'm having trouble grasping the possibility that he always had a ploy up his sleeve, meaning that it was always done premeditated, you know, planned in advance. They were planning on doing this. They had the ploy up their sleeve the whole time. They were just waiting for the moment to do it. Sometimes that will happen. Sometimes they will plan things well in advance, down to the detail, just really intricate. And I think sometimes it's just done impulsively in the moment when the opportunity showed up. Maybe it was something that you said or you did something or something that happened and they took advantage of that. So I think there's both there. I think there's the kind of abuses that are planned well in advance. It's planned out. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Whatever goes through their mind and how they set all that up. And then there's the kind where it just happens in the moment. Either it's impulsively and they had no control over it or something happened in the moment and they just took advantage of the moment and they thought, oh, this is the perfect time to do this because then they're going to think that or they're going to do that and I'll get them hooked again. So I think it can be both. I think it can be both. Sometimes they're just waiting around for the next opportunity. So why did they do this? Like if they really don't care and they don't have empathy, why would they be nice? Well, I think at some level, even if they don't know what the Stockholm syndrome is, at some level they know that if they're kind, you lean into them more. They know that at some level, I think. I think another big part of it is the image that they want to create. So you know how to the narcissist or any other cluster B the image that they portray and the image that others see of them is very important. So in the example of a narcissistic parent, maybe that parent is trying to play the good mother or the cool mother or the good husband and father to other people out in public and also to you and or to the family. Maybe there's children Maybe this is your partner and you have children together. And so it's very confusing for the kids because they're like, well, dad seems like a really nice person. He does all this. Or mommy seems like a really nice person. She does all this. But they don't see behind that image. It's just the superficial image. They want to maintain that image. So that's one thing that the kindness will serve them is their image. The other thing, another thing that it will serve is your dependence on them. So say you meet this altruistic person, you start dating or you become friends with them and they're always, you know, helping you out and they're like offering when you're not even asking for help. They're over and above offering things and it's almost uncomfortable how helpful they're making themselves. And what's going to happen is if you lean into that, you start to become dependent on them. You start to count on them for those things and that's how they control you. It's, it's a very sick form of control. It's a very covert form of control. It's not direct and aggressive and outward bullying. It's really obvious to see. This is the roundabout way, the very covert, sly way of controlling you because then you're their pawn. They've got you. Now that you're dependent on them and you're looking forward to them doing these things, now they can control you. They can control your behaviors. They can control your perceptions. They can control your feelings about things. And they can always say to you, well, you know, I did all of that for you, so you should do this for me. That kind of stuff. It also serves them as a form of supply. 
So when they're doing good deeds and they do things that appear to be kind and good, they want something from you. Maybe in that very moment, you know, the next sentence that they're going to say is, oh, hey, can you do this and that? Or, hey, I was wondering this and that. Or maybe they're setting you up a day in advance, an hour in advance, a week in advance. Maybe they're plotting this slowly and generally uh, slowly and consistently during over a period of time. And then they're going to lay it on you, whatever it is. And somehow they're going to trap you into doing that because all this that they did for you. So now when you look at that, you're like, well, yeah, I guess I am kind of a jerk if I say no, because they did all this. That's why it's really confusing. So you want to be very careful if you just meet a new friend or you just start dating someone and they're being all too helpful to you. Okay, red flag, big red flag. This will also happen with narcissistic parents. Maybe you have a mother or father who's a covert narcissist or a sociopath because the sociopath are the most covert ones. But let's say it's a covert narcissist or sociopathic parent and to the outside world, they're always taking care of you. They're giving you money. They're providing this. They're providing that. They offer to do this and that. And then they can tell all their friends how much they do for you. They can tell all the family how much they do for you. And they really confuse your mind into thinking that they actually care, that they're actually just wanting to do nice things for you. But really, it's just a form of control. They know that they can control you. They know you'll do what they want. They know that, you know, if they do this thing, then that buys them so much contact with you or something of this nature. They can be very sneaky like that. And it's very confusing when it's your parent too, because, you know, you're you're trying to understand what is this narcissistic parent thing, but sometimes they're really nice and they do all this stuff. And then you feel like a jerk if you call them out. It's set up that way. That's how the covert type sets it up so that you can't talk about it. And if you do, everybody looks at you like you're nuts because look at all they did for you. Maybe it's your boss and you want to call it out and everybody's like, oh, come on. You know, they're leading the mission to Africa and they're saving people and they're giving them vaccines and they're giving them food and they're going on and on about how amazing this person is when an exemplary figure in society they are because that's the image that person set up. It's like a bank. They know they do these kind things or these seemingly good things. They earn money in a bank, you know, that bank is like their image of a good person. So it's very, very confusing. That's where the deepest form of cognitive dissonance will come in is with the covert form of abuse. The overt form of abuse is so much easier to see. But when it's so covert and hidden behind all these layers of perceived kindness and goodness, it's just like an extra mind zap. It short circuits your brain. Literally, cognitive dissonance short circuits your brain. You're like, but this, but that, but this, but that. And your brain is trying to hold on to two completely opposite things. And it's like, and then you go into some kind of hypnotic trance. And now you're just going through the motions and doing what they want you to do. And you're not observing it and detaching yourself and really seeing it for what it is. So you want to urge caution, especially if you're still involved with one of these people, you're still confused by these acts of kindness. Or if you're looking back, if you got out and you went no contact, awesome job, or you mitigated the contact, right? Maybe it's your parent or maybe you're sharing custody of children, right? So you can't be entirely no contact with the parent of your kids, but you've mitigated contact. You have minimal contact. It's only about the kids. You're doing the gray rock technique. Great job. But maybe you're still confused. Maybe you're looking back and you're like, yeah, but all those kind things. Yeah, but all those nice things. Yeah, but in society, they really seem to recognize that that is a form of manipulation, 
that's a form of how they get what they want from people by maintaining that image, by being able to get in and create a dependence and a control over people and then to get the supply that they want and be able to get people to do what they want because they're such a kind person. So the bottom line is when they're being nice, I would be very aware that something is coming around the corner. I would be very, very cautious. It's, it's like a false sense of security that you could lean into only to get hurt and smacked down. The words are going to sound so nice. You know, the acts are going to seem so nice. Be very careful that you don't lean into that because it's a false sense of security. They're just trying to suck you into something and before you know it, you're going to be manipulated again. So always urge caution around these acts of kindness. Always try to see them for what they they are and question at least inside yourself, why would they be doing this? What are they trying to gain by doing this? What's the purpose? And again, recognize that sometimes this could be plotted well in advance. The gaslighting and the complexities of all that, especially when you're talking about a really sociopathic person, they can plan things for days, weeks, months, and years. Like literally they have the amount of patience to wait years to carry out some forms of their abuse. It's so sick. So be really cautious that sometimes it's that way and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's on the fly. It's in the moment. They're just flowing with whatever came up or it's an impulsive thing. Like the borderlines often do the impulsive thing. When they feel insecure about something, they will just blurt out something in the moment, which they didn't put a lot of time and planning into. It just came out in the moment and they took advantage of the moment. They took advantage of something that was happening in order to abuse you. So be cautious that it can come in both forms. Just always like set it up so that like your internal alarm system goes off. When you see an act of kindness or altruism from this person that you already suspect is somewhere on that cluster B spectrum, just let your alarm bells go off so that you really start to depersonalize and observe what's happening and you don't get sucked in. So I know it can be really confusing. It really, this is like, this is the thing that I hear consistently from clients that I work with. We'll start the session and quite often, like the very initial piece before we get into like the major coaching is they just want validation. They're not crazy that this person is a narcissist or some form of cluster B because they're really confused by those acts of kindness. That's always what confuses people are the acts of kindness. So today I want to talk about this idealization, right? Because the idealization is like the fun part of it all, right? Like that's the part that feels good. It's the part that is not recognizable as the abuse. It's the devaluation that's the more hurtful part. That's the more obvious part of the abuse because it's cruel, it's mean, it might be biting criticism heavy fear propaganda used to control your behavior, like those little double entendre little digs that they put in there, that sort of stuff is more obvious that it's not okay. So remember, the abuse cycle is both the idealization and the devaluation. It's part of the whole cycle. This is one of the most important things to understand. These are the manipulator's primary styles of interaction. They're pretty much always either idealizing you or devaluing you. And they have many tools in each of those boxes. And also remember, it doesn't always look the same from abuser to abuser. If you've met more than one of these types, you might recognize that like the idealization phase and the devaluation phase were kind of different from person to person. So the I and D, the idealization and devaluation, are known as the two phases of the abuse cycle, aka the sweet mean cycle. I did a video on this last year, a little over a year ago, I think. It was called the big 
picture. If you haven't seen that yet, I recommend watching it. I'm going to put the link in the video description below. Why is that important to see? Because it's like you have to get this in order to free yourself from the trap of the cognitive dissonance. Because I hear a lot from people, well, you know, they're really not a narcissist or abuser because sometimes they're a really good person and sometimes it really seems like they're changing. That's how it works. Okay, if they were an asshole all the time, it would be obvious. The trick wouldn't work. That's why the idealization is so important to the abuse cycle. That's why it's so dangerous. So recognize too that it's two phases, right? The idealization and the devaluation. Yet the funny thing is they're both often happening in each phase to different degrees. It's just that the devaluation at the beginning during the more idealization phase is a lot more subtle. There's a lot more plausible deniability, smaller little digs, there's smaller little things. It's just a lot more subtle, but it's still going on under the surface. And then towards the end, when you're like in the heavy devaluation phase, the idealization is still used mostly only when they want to pull you back in, like when they sense that you're moving away, that you're withdrawing, that you're taking away the narcissistic supply, you're not giving them that reaction that they want. That's when they'll start idealizing you again to start to pull you back in. Remember, at the beginning, the idealization might be subtle. Like the love bombing is not always over the top. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it just might be like some little flattery, which you might perceive as genuine compliments or just subtle signs of approval or kindness. Remember the Stockholm Syndrome, which is the trauma bond, works on this intermittent reinforcement. I love you. I love you not. I approve you. I disprove you. And this back and forth creates a stronger bond. This is well known. For example, in the pickup artist community, there's a book called The Game. There's another book called The Mystery Method. There's probably a lot more out there. You know, and essentially what they're teaching men to do. And again, I'm not saying all these abusers are men. Okay, I'm just saying the whole pickup artist thing is generally teaching men how to trick women and essentially to get them caught in this intermittent reinforcement to create a strong bond with them, right? But when you add on top of that intermittent reinforcement abuse, that's when the trauma bond is created. Even without the outright abuse, it's dangerous because it's manipulative and the people who do it know what they're doing. It's really important to understand. They know what they're doing. They know if they give you a little bit of idealization, and then the devaluation that they've got you hooked into that cycle. Often, both the idealization and the devaluation can be used in the same conversation and interaction. And it's often like very subtle at first, especially the more covert the person is. It, it could be so very subtle. And then the flip-flop is increasingly more intense as the months and years go by. Like, you know, when the stock market is about to crash, that flip-flop, the up and down, it's, it's a lot more intense, like just before the crash. They'll only hurt you, remember, to comfort you, right? So they'll, they'll hurt you and then they'll comfort you. They'll feel that they're sorry. You know, they'll do something and then, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to hurt you. Or they get you to take the blame and the responsibility of what happened and then they forgive you. You know, that kind of thing. Or they'll flatter you only to end that sentence with a subtle little put down. For example, you're so wonderful because blah, blah, blah. And you know, you're also blah, blah meaning that you're not good enough. Or they give you or do something for you that they know that you'll love, and then they'll guilt trip you into doing something for them. It's the bait and switch. 
It's the boss who tells you how wonderful you are, how they wish they had more employees like you, how no one works with the same work ethic and dedication. And then Friday at 4 p.m. they show up at your cubicle or your office door and they dump this extra work on you and they ask you to work over the weekend. So essentially they softened you not to be able to say no because then if you say no, then all those positive things they said about you are null and void. It's the mother who tells you how proud she is of you. She's just so happy for you and your accomplishments. And then she sends you a birthday card with some kind of covert message implying that you should just play it small. It's the partner or the friend who tells you nobody gets you. Nobody gets them like you do. Uh, no one has helped them like you do. You're just such an amazing and giving person. They're so lucky to have you in their life. And then they start guilt tripping you into taking responsibility for them and their shit. And then when they refuse to take care of themselves and they try to get you to do it for them, if you don't do it, then it's like everything good that they said about you is null and void. It's the bind. It's how they get you trapped. So why is it so dangerous if you don't realize what's going on with the idealization? On the surface, it's confusing. It looks like kindness, approval, compliments, admiration. It sucks you in. It's seduction, but that seduction is not always sexual. It could be, you know, a female friend that tells another female, you know, that she's praising her, her looks. Uh, it could be anybody praising your talents, your qualities, your accomplishments, anything in your life in general that you've done or that you have or that you are. This idealization tempts you to place your sense of approval in the other person. And when you watch that video, the big picture, I talk about that, or maybe it was another one actually that I wrote, something about the danger of placing your approval in another person. Where So say this person's here and they're giving you this approval and, and they're giving you all these positive things and then maybe you start to lean into that because it feels good. As soon as this person takes one step away, what happens? You fall flat on your face. That's the whole trick. That idealization softens your boundaries because it feels good. It feels good to everybody. It turns off your alarm system. So when someone's praising you and then they do something kind of sneaky and tricky right after that, you might not notice it so much because that alarm system got turned off by the feel good. The idealization is used also when you're slipping away, when they sense that you're withdrawing, that you're not giving them that supply that they need, that you just might leave, that's when they're gonna start a whole nother round of idealization until they get you in again, and then it flips back to devaluation. So essentially the idealization tricks you into thinking that the abuser has a good side, and it creates this false hope that one day they'll just be that good person, so you stay waiting around for that day that will never come. Or it causes you to miss the good times. And by creating that false hope, you might stay reaching for that carrot on a stick that you'll never get because it just keeps moving. Or you might get hoovered back in even after you've gotten out because you started feeling nostalgic for those good times. I, I just see this over and over again. That idealization is an inherent part of the trauma bond. When we talk about Stockholm Syndrome, one of the four characteristics is a perceived act of kindness. So really, really get that. Like write it down if you have to, if you're really struggling with that denial, like put it on little sticky notes, put it on your phone, write it on your bathroom mirror, like something so that you get it into your head. Once you see through the idealization for what it is, it feels so fake and empty and then you're not fooled by it anymore. 
So the bottom line is, if you don't fall for the idealization, you won't get trauma bonded. It doesn't mean you're not going to meet one of these people. It doesn't mean you might not see it right, right away if that person is really covert. But when the devaluation really starts, your alarm system will go off and you'll know that something isn't right, even if it's really subtle at first. And even if you give them the benefit of the doubt at first, you'll be able to recognize a lot quicker what's going on because you won't be emotionally hooked to the good times or the approval that that person was giving you. If you value yourself, that idealization doesn't knock you off balance. So you'll be able to leave without the pain that you felt in the past with others, without the gravity of the trauma bond, because you're not going to get trauma bonded to that person because you didn't fall for the idealization. So then when the devaluation becomes evident, you're out. Remember, it's not so easy to see at first, especially with those covert types. So essentially, becoming immune to the idealization is how you build antibodies against this insidious virus of narcissistic abuse. So how do you not fall for the idealization? Number one, stop placing your sense of approval in other people. Start validating and approving of yourself. Maybe you never had that validation and approval since childhood because you grew up with a narcissistic parent. That wasn't your fault. Recognize like this is what created your, your tendency to people please, right? Because you're seeking approval that you didn't get at home or that you got only occasionally when you were doing what that narcissistic parent wanted you to do. Right? So recognize if that's you and then start giving that approval and that validation to yourself on the daily. Notice your reaction when someone praises you. Okay, how do you feel? And then what's your response? Right? So if you notice that you're leaning into that a lot, or if you notice that it really knocks you off center, or you're like, oh my God, right? That kind of reaction. Catch yourself doing that and ask yourself, how can you neutralize that? How can you neutralize your response to that, right? So that when someone praises you, you get used to going, thanks, and you don't invest any more in it. That's how you maintain your immunity. That's how you build antibodies to this kind of abuse. So practice not allowing yourself to get knocked off center when someone praises you, and then you won't get doped up on the idealization, and that will keep your head clear. Here are some acts that could be interpreted as kindness. Maybe the person hugs you after basically telling you that you're a worthless piece of shit and making you cry, and then they hug you and tell you that, you know, it's all right, and you can just try a little harder, and you'll figure it out, or... And you know, they just know that you're trying the best or maybe it's the other way where they hurt you, they call you worthless piece of shit and then they hug you and they're like, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean any of that. I'm just stressed out and just blah, blah, blah. And it appears to be this act of kindness that they hugged you. Or maybe like they're like raging and terrifying you and then they take off for a while and just disappear and then they show up like with your favorite dessert or your favorite sandwich or your favorite beer or bottle of wine or something and it appears like an act of kindness. Or maybe they call you a whore for the way that you're wearing your makeup or the outfit that you're wearing and they're putting you down and then all of a sudden they start kissing you and want to have sex with you. Seems like they're trying to be intimate, but they just said all that stuff to you. Or maybe they treat you like shit and then they go to church and they come back and they tell you, you know, what a deep conversation that they had with God. Or maybe they treat you like shit 
And then they go and they do that thing that like you've been asking them to do for months or they promised to do for months and they finally like do that thing, you know, like right after treating you like crap. Or maybe, you know, they treat you like shit and then deposit money into your bank account or go buy you some kind of gift. Or maybe they ignore you and give you the silent treatment for a whole week. And then suddenly they show up and they're talking about taking you on vacation, all expenses paid. Or maybe they're like abusing you and then they have all these words of softness and tenderness and they want to cuddle you and they want to get you all this stuff that you like and say to you all these things that they know you want to hear. Or maybe, maybe... They even admit to you, their act of kindness is admitting to you that they have a problem and saying they want to get help, but of course they never followed through with that, right? So this is all used as a form of manipulation. These are just some examples of how confusing it could be. How they, how they manipulate you to keep you stuck in the trauma bond, the Stockholm Syndrome, the cognitive dissonance, by using these perceived acts of kindness. So why are these so dangerous? I did a video maybe a couple months ago on the dangers of love bombing, the dangers of idealization. A reason why these acts of kindness, although they appear to be noble, they appear to be good things, they appear to be good signs, they cause a false hope. They cause this false hope that maybe this person is actually good inside, or maybe this person means well, or you know, maybe they're not so bad after all, or maybe they can change after all. Maybe one day they'll just be that good side that you see in them. It's really important to remember, just because that person isn't abusing you in this moment does not mean that they love you. Or like the abuse and then the temporary reprieve from the abuse in that moment, that does not equal love. And it's really, really important to remember that. So the perceived act of kindness is also really dangerous in the hoovering process. So like maybe you get out, maybe you get away, and then this person comes back and they're saying all those things that they know are just going to touch your little heartstrings and make you feel a sense of compassion or remind you how much you love them or it just melts your heart in some way. Some of them do that. Maybe they even like go out of their way with words and gifts and acts and put on this whole big show to make you feel special and appreciated and heard and valued. Or maybe they take the guilt tripping approach, which is like, look at all I've done for you or, you know, all I did was love you and I'm sorry it wasn't good enough for you. Crocodile tears, you know, that kind of stuff. So, you know, the, the reality is this is used as a manipulation tactic. It's used to suck you back in when they know that you're getting away or they sense that you're on to them and you're going to get away. That's when they really turn up these fake acts of kindness so that you perceive that they actually care about you. But really, it's Lucy and Charlie Brown and that fucking football. And Charlie's never going to get to kick that football because Lucy's always going to rip it out from under him. And that's how the game goes. So another dangerous rationale that I hear is giving the person this benefit of the doubt, well, you know, he or she had a bad childhood too. That is never a pass. A lot of us had shitty childhoods and we didn't choose to grow up and abuse people, right? So don't feel pity for people who had a bad childhood and then use that as a card to treat you like crap and then justify it. Like that is not a pass. Having been abused is never an excuse to abuse somebody else. They're making a choice to do that of their own free will now as an adult. They're making a choice to do that. 
And if you aren't really sure sometimes, like, are they really aware of what they're doing? Or maybe they're just this innocent, hurt little boy or girl. Like, think about how carefully they choose to show that face to you. And then when they're out in public and in front of people that they want to manage their impression around, like they have this whole other face and persona, but then they know exactly when to take that mask off in front of you and how to treat you in private when no one's looking. That's how you know it's a choice. And, and it's like, you know, when you're around other people sometimes who will minimize it and normalize it, they know they can get away with it. So sometimes they'll show a little more of that side around those people that they know they can get away with it. But notice how they recognize recognize that. Notice how they recognize when they're in that situation when people are going to back them up and let them get away with it and justify it and minimalize, minimalize it, minimize it. And then when they do that to you in private versus when they're in front of a group of people that they're trying to manage the impression around. Bottom line, look at their actions. They can say all kinds of kind things and they might show up with gifts and stuff, but look at their behaviors. Are they changing or are they repeating those same behaviors? Are they still abusing you? That's your answer. Never mind all those staged acts of kindness. You have to learn to see through that stuff. Learn to see when it's a manipulation, when it's a superficial thing, when it's love bombing, when it's idealization and a seduction technique. So remember that the intermittent reinforcement is what causes the strongest bond, right? And they know that at some level, like when maybe they haven't read a book, like maybe they all haven't read that same book that tells them exactly how to do it, even though at times it can appear that way. At some level, they just know that if they do this and then they do that, it's going to have this desired response, reaction in you. So when you have that intermittent reinforcement and you add into the mix abuse and you add into the mix isolation from other people's perspectives, what you have is the making of the Stockholm Syndrome. So don't confuse attention-seeking forgiving. Because when they're doing all this stuff and this idealization and these acts of kindness, what are they actually doing? And they're contacting you and contacting you. That's not about giving at all. That's all about taking. That's a manipulation. And when you understand what narcissistic supply is, and I made a video on that around the time as the one on the idealization. Uh, I think it was called all, Are All Narcissist Addicts? And I talk about narcissistic supply. And when you really understand what is narcissistic supply, you can see how all that love bombing, all that idealization, all those acts of kindness is just a manipulation and nothing more. And you'll really understand why they do that. So, you know, when you take away that narcissistic supply, when you don't react in the way they want you to, to their perceived acts of kindness, for example, they're going to, they're going to punish you for taking away that supply. You'll see, they'll either use the guilt tripping or they'll use something more direct and aggressive, or they'll try to blame you for it. Watch how they treat you in that moment when you don't give them that supply they want and ask yourself, like, does that really look like love? because it's probably not. They love what they're getting from you. They love that you're giving them the narcissistic supply, but when you stop giving them that narcissistic supply, which you are just a conduit for, and you're like an interchangeable object to them for that supply, they will drop you so fast, they will hurt you so fast, and move on to someone else who's gonna give them that supply, right? That just shows you how meaningless you as a person are to them. Like, they don't see you as a person, they see you as an appliance, they see you as an object. That's why they objectify people to get what they want. That's the bottom line. So love bombing, the acts of kindness, it's an appearance of giving. It's an appearance of goodwill. But that's just part of the manipulation and confusion. Like it's a transaction. And, you know, they do what they think that you're looking for 
to get you in, to suck you in so that you give them what they want. And then they are always going to revert back to who they are. Always. It's inevitable. So no matter how much they give you, remember that's all part of the con for them to get something from you. It's for them to get something from you. The whole point is to suck you back in. And as soon as you're back in and you're settling into that act of kindness because it feels good and it looks good and it gives you that sense of renewed hope again, it's going to turn around on you like that. They're going to be abusing you again just like that. And then you're going to go right back into that cycle. Sweet, mean, sweet, mean, sweet, mean. And it just keeps perpetuating over time and escalating and getting worse. So understand the dangers of the perceived acts of kindness. Understand the dangers of misperceiving that as actual kindness and recognize it's all part of the manipulation strategy, part of the love bombing, part of the idealization. So hopefully now you can look back at some of those experiences that you've had. Maybe if you're still someone who's in that point where you're like, oh, but the good side, and I really want to see this good side in him or her. Now really look back with different perspective at those acts of kindness. Notice when they came, like notice what happened before the act of kindness and what happened after that act of kindness. And you're going to start to see a bigger picture there. I would recommend journaling that stuff because it's really hard to pierce that denial, to pierce the cognitive dissonance. This is an exercise that will help you to dissolve that cognitive dissonance by facing the truth and the fact that that act of kindness was just a manipulation. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Inner Integration Podcast. I hope you learned something today that helps you see from a new perspective so you can take new action and transform your life after narcissistic abuse. Remember, you are enough, you matter, and you got this. If you liked this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to get automatic updates on new podcast episodes as they're released. Visit us online at www.innerintegration.com where you'll get a free three-part video course when you enter your name and email on the homepage. Get loads of more free content to help you heal after narcissistic abuse on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Big hug to you.